Well, good, good to have all of you here today online as well as in person. Before I begin my message, can I ask you to do something with me? Can we pray for um, a person, uh, one of our fellow pastors in Brea, Pastor Bob Reeve at The Cause, which is the church probably closest to us right now, our neighbors. Um, he's in the hospital uh, with COVID, and their associate pastor asked, reached out to me as well as the other pastors in Brea to pray for him. Um, he, he, he's been sick for a while, but um, uh, unless things turn around, he's probably going to get on a ventilator, which is not a good news for someone his age. So, hey, can we, and then, you know, like, um, I, I, we say this periodically and repeatedly, um, uh, the other churches, we're not in competition, we're all on the same team, and we root each other on, we do ministry together, and uh, the cause in particular is a, a, a neighbor church, uh, like I said, closest to us right now can you can we take a minute to pray for pastor bob reeve of the cause uh, church let's pray lord jesus we come before you as part of the, the big church, and we pray for our, our fellow brother, fellow pastor, Pastor Bob Reeve. We pray that your gracious hand would be upon him, and that as you have already, that you will continue to do your healing work in his heart, his, his body, his lungs, that, Lord, through uh, the hands and skills of uh, the medical personnels, that you would divinely also heal him. Lord, may you surround him with uh, men and women who will pray for him, uh, anoint him, and, and, and really care for him. We look forward to hearing good news, but more than anything, we, uh, we lean on your sovereignty and your grace. We thank you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And thank you. Uh, let's continue to keep not only Pastor Bob Reeve in prayer, but others around us. Uh, who may be struggling uh, not only with sickness but other uh, needs as well. Uh, we are going to cover two pa uh, stories in the book of Mark, chapter 11 today, and they're stories that you're probably familiar with. The first is the coronation of the king, uh, known as uh, the triumphal entry. Uh, oftentimes, the church celebrates that particular event on Palm Sunday, which is the week before Easter, and I know Easter is the beginning of April, but we're going to start uh, today, and so uh, that, that whole week is going to be stretched out into about a month and a half in this series called The Warning to the Returning Church. The second story that we're going to talk about is the confrontation at the temple, and also we're going to weave in another little story called The Condemnation of the Tree. You know, today's sermon will be a lot of Bible and history and background. So if, you're, if you are a Bible nerd, you will enjoy it. If you're not, I, I really do believe there will be some things that you will learn which will help you to understand uh, the, the stories and the historical events in more detail and, and allow you to understand why this is true and why it makes so much sense. And so before I begin, let me frame three things out. Um, the climate, the day, and the place. First of all, the climate. It is the occupation, uh, meaning that the Roman Empire around 63 BC has now extended to Israel, and they will occupy 
Israel for about 400 years. And so by the time Jesus in Mark chapter 11 uh, comes into the scene here, uh, the Romans had been occupying Israel for about 100 years now. And no one likes to be occupied. It is a painful thing. I remember talking to my father who uh, grew up during the Japanese occupation in Korea. And I believe in his generation, their greatest pain, their greatest pain was the, the occupation and the, the thing that they desired the most, the things that they hoped for the most, was liberation from occupation. And in the same way, I believe the Jews at the time believed that their greatest pain um, were the Roman occupiers and their greatest prayer, their desire was liberation for, for God to send like a Moses-like figure who liberated uh, the Jews from the Egyptians hundreds of years ago for someone like him to come along and free them from the oppressors of Rome. The second thing I want to frame out is the day. When Jesus walks into Jerusalem in this particular passage, it's the beginning of Passover week. And Passover is one of the two most holy days uh, for the Jewish people outside of the, the Day of Atonement. Now, historically, uh, the Passover began in this way. When the Jews were under oppression in the land of Egypt, Moses comes, sends a series of plagues, and the very last plague, if you remember, God sends death. But the Jews could be saved by sacrificing an animal and sprinkling the blood of the animal on their doorpost. So when death came, it would pass over that house. So uh, the principle that was shown to Israel at that time, or the Hebrew people at that time, is that the blood of a sacrifice can bring salvation. So it not only was relevant then, but it, it preempts, uh, it shows that there's something future about that, that the blood of the sacrifice gives salvation. And when they go into the wilderness and then they receive the law, they learn a lot more about the blood of sacrifices and how that can forgive uh, people for their sins. And the Jews, what they would do is they would remember the Passover, remember the Passover year after year, and the Passover then becomes one of the two most holy days in which the Jews from all across uh, the, the area would trek back to Jerusalem like, uh, the, like Muslims would do to Mecca and Hajj. And they would come back in order to offer sacrifices as a memorial and how somehow uh, be forgiven. The, the blood of the sacrifice would forgive them. The third element that I want to uh, frame out is the temple. Now, for us, the Protestant Christians, location isn't that important. Although we think, you know, worshiping in the sanctuary is maybe a little bit more holy than, let's say, praying at a bowling alley. But at the same time, uh, the location for the Jews mattered significantly more. Um, the temple is where the presence of God, the holiness of God, resided. And uh, when someone wanted to give an offering, a prayer, the location of the temple really mattered. When someone wanted to offer a legit official sacrifice to God in Passover and other times, they would have to do it at the temple under the inspection of and the hands of an official priest. They could not just do it anywhere they lived or around the country. So when the Jews came back to Jerusalem on Passover, they weren't coming 
uh, necessarily to the capital. That's not why they came to Jerusalem, but they came to Jerusalem because the temple was there. Okay, so that helps frame things. And as we go through the stories, I'll refer back to it, and it'll, it'll help you to understand the depth of it and the reason why some things are the way they are. First of all, let's go to Mark chapter 11, and let's begin with the coronation of the king. Verse 1, as they, now Jesus and his uh, disciples, approached Jerusalem. So um, for about three years, most of Jesus' ministry was up in the Galilee area. Um, and now they are approaching Jerusalem for the final week of the life of Jesus. They approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples. Now, uh, there are a couple things I want to point out here. Uh, Bethany was uh, a town about two miles east of Jerusalem, so uh, within walking distance, very close. But it is also the town where uh, Ma uh, Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus lived. Now, the reason that's significant was Lazarus, if you know him, he's the one God raised from the dead. And that became news to the people of Jerusalem. Uh, so the, the person that God, uh, Jesus raised from the dead was someone who lived right close to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus comes to Bethany again, uh, people are, are saying, wow, okay, there's, there's Jesus who healed, who raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus sends two of his disciples into Jerusalem to get a cult and by sovereignty of God's uh, divine purpose, or because he knew the owner or something, uh, he, they were able to secure this cult and, and bring, him, uh, bring the cult to Jesus. And the, the fact that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey is important. Uh, um, Matthew and John both talk about it as a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Let me read, rejoice. Greatly, O daughters of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? It's interesting they call the prophet Zechariah, talks about a coming Messiah in a manner that is um, humble. Uh, more, uh, someone who, could, who would ride a donkey. Now, the entrance, verse 8, is what we know as the triumphal entry. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And these are words that we sing songs of praise to uh, the crowd probably crowd from Jerusalem coming out to meet Jesus remember this is a two mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem and others who were in Bethany now coming up uh, uh, bringing up the rear with Jesus some were spreading leafy leaves and um, other uh, passages talk about palm leaves and that's why we call it Palm Sunday others were taking their coat their jackets and putting them on the road this is a symbol of you can walk all over me uh, I submit to your leadership and so what they were doing what the crowd was doing was saying we celebrate you and we submit to you what they sang was Hosanna uh, which means save us uh, save now save now deliver us now they're 
singing from Psalm chapter 118, the Psalm of Salvation, sometimes called the Conqueror's Psalm. Now, now I'm going too fast. Um, this was, what was happening was a spontaneous uh, coronation um, by a people so desperate, so desperate for a conquering king. The word on the street was that Jesus was a miracle worker. In John chapter 6, he fed miraculously 5,000. At the end of that miraculous 5,000, it says in John that the crowd tried to force Jesus to be king. And Jesus said no, and he went away because it was not time yet. In John chapter 12, verse 9, it says when Jesus and his disciples were staying in Bethany at the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, a crowd came uh, to see Jesus who healed Lazarus. And in Luke's account of the, uh, of the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19, verse 37, it says, the crowd began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. What the crowd was doing is they were reacting to what they believed was a miracle worker, much like Moses. And if you recall, this is Passover week. They had to be reminded of the, the miracles that Moses uh, did a while ago. And like Moses, who did miracles and sent judgments on their oppressor, they believed that perhaps Jesus will come and do the same against the Romans. But as, it is, but as you and I know, that is not the reason why Jesus came. One uh, commentator writes, they were correct to hail Jesus as the coming king, as Zechariah 9.9 promised, but they failed to appreciate the significance of his riding upon the donkey, symbolic of a non-military and humble Mission. I don't know if you ever uh, have seen a depiction of Jesus riding a donkey coming into Jerusalem. People are hailing him. One of the things that have always kind of troubled me was that, that is, that's a poor outfit for a conquering king. You would think a conquering king would ride a horse at least, but not a slow donkey. Jesus had repeatedly told the disciples, but they didn't quite get it, and neither the crowd. Though he uh, did miracles to prove that he was the Son of God, the purpose that he, was, uh, that he came and the purpose that he was riding into Jerusalem was not to conquer, but we were told in uh, Mark chapter uh, 10, 45, that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Let's go to the second story, the confrontation at the temple. When he arrives in Jerusalem that same day at the triumphal entry, uh, he doesn't go uh, to confront Pilate or King Herod, the, the political center, but rather he slips into the temple, the religious center. And when he enters the temple, there is not a, a celebration, a welcome, a banquet by the religious elite, but rather it is quite anticlimactic. In verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He, he comes, 
He looks around at the temple, and then he goes back to Martha and Mary and Lazarus' home two miles uh, east of Jerusalem. Now, when, when we hear the term temple, we think of a very uniform space. Now, let me describe to you the temple because this is important, okay? The temple, I think of a, a large church ground or, or, uh, or so, but it is comprised of concentric areas in which uh, different people were allowed to come into the different areas, uh, but not all the way through. And at the core, the very center of the temple is the holy place, and at the holy place is the holy of holies. And the holy of holies, that's where the ark is, etc. It's the most holy place. Even the priests were not able to go into that particular place on a regular basis. And when they go in, um, in particular times of the year, it was very dangerous, you know, unless they're, they're struck down dead because of their sins. Um, and so in the Holy of Holies, in the holy place, only select priests were able uh, to, to, to go there. Outside of that is another concentric circle, the court of the priests. And only priests are able to be in that space. And what they would do there is they would do their priestly duties, including uh, offering up sacrifices. So when someone brings a sacrifice to the temple, it would be actually uh, processed and, and burnt or whatever in the court of the priests. Outside of that is the court of Israel. If you're a Jewish male and you wanted to go and pray and you wanted to, uh, to meet God or, or really feel uh, the sense of the presence of God, you would go to the court of Israel uh, to, to pray and to worship. Now, there's an adjacent court called the court of women and, and in that particular uh, culture, men and women did not worship together. They uh, worshiped separately. And the women would be in the court of women to pray. But this is only the Jewish women. Now, uh, so that is the temple, what, what a lot of Jewish uh, people would consider uh, temple proper. There is an outer court, which is called the court of Gentiles. Now, this is where a non-ethnic Jew would go if they wanted to pray and, and meet the Yahweh God in this particular place. Uh, and so if you were a non-ethnic Jew and you are a worshiper of God, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place. You could not go into the Court of Israel. You could not go into the Court of Women. The, the closest you can get is the Court of Gentiles. This is, um, for the Gentiles, this is very equivalent of the sanctuary. This is where uh, you would want to go and, and uh, get on your knees and to pray and to cry out to God. The problem, the problem, and when we're told in chapter 11, verse 11, and later on, chapter 11, verse 15, when Jesus enters the temple, he's entering not the court of uh, Israel, but where the Jews are, but he is entering the court of Gentiles. And what he finds is that it has become like a marketplace, like a flea market, where there is economic trans, uh, transactions taking place. Now, uh, it, is, it was necessary at the time for two types of transactions to take place. Um, 
pilgrims from all over the area would come back to Israel during Passover. Some commentators believe, and Josephus, a Jewish historian, believes that there were over two million uh, Jews during this particular time uh, to worship. Uh, and when they would come, they, were, they, were, uh, they had to come and they wanted to do two things. They want to give a, a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, like the Passover, and they wanted to pay their temple tax. So they wanted to give a sacrifice, and they wanted to give an offering, a monetary offering. Now here's the problem, okay? The animal had to be uh, uh, priestly inspected and approved. No blemishes, no spot, it can't be lame, etc., 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 right? And also, practically speaking, you're not going to try to bring a, a lamb or a goat or a dove from, uh, you know, like dozens or hundreds of miles away. And then if you did, and, it, and the priest inspected and say, no, no, there's a spot here, a blemish here, you know, that's all wasted. So the most practical thing to do is for the Jews to come in, uh, to come to the court, um, to the temple, and buy a, a pre-approved animal here for sacrifice, okay? Now, the second thing that they need to do is they need to pay a temple tax. But the problem is they lived in the Roman Empire, the Roman monetary system, and the and the coins that they normally use for economic transactions had the image of the emperor. And that was abhorrent to the Jew because they believed that was like the breaking, a, um, you're making a graven image of a, of a person, especially because the Roman Empire deified the emperor. And so the average citizen could not bring their normal money and say, this is my temple tax. But what they had to do is they had to exchange that money to a monetary um, uh, denomination that did not have an, a graven image of a person, a, a temple coin or a, a, a Tyranian coin. Okay, so two types of transition, transaction needed to take place, all understand, um, understandable. But anytime, anytime uh, uh, things like this happen and uh, one group of people, and in this case, the priests had a monopoly on this. Uh, you know that there's corruption. Now, let's look at verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. Now, remember, he's not entering the court of Israel, where, where there's like solemn worship going on, but he entered the court of Gentiles, where there's a flea market going on. And and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the te uh, tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. This is, if you recall the story of Jesus, his life of Jesus, even to the death of Jesus, this is, I would say, the most violent we ever see Jesus. He has spoken violently, but he's never physically acted violently. He literally um, would take people who were selling animals or exchanging uh, money, and he physically would restrain them and then drag them, and he would turn tables over this is the kind of thing that good Christians today, the living hope type of Christians, we would say, oh, we should never do stuff like that. Like we, we just don't condone that kind of destructive activity. For some reason, Jesus 
was so angry, so upset, he felt like he needed to do this. Do this. And in and Gospel of John, it said the zeal of the, uh, of the Lord consumed him. He, he, he was so passionate about the temple. And he begins to teach. And I believe what he, his teaching here is loudly proclaiming as loud as he can so everyone at the courtyard can hear him. Verse 17, he began to teach and say to them, is it not written? Don't you know? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Now, I want to tell you why he was so upset. I believe there are two reasons why Jesus was so upset with what he found. Okay? The first reason why he was upset is uh, the corruption of religion. The corruption of religion. You have made it a robber's den. It was necessary, of course, for pilgrims to come and, and purchase sacrificial animals that were clean and acceptable. It was necessary for them to exchange coins. That was acceptable. But whenever a group of people has a monopoly, a monopoly on, on something like this, there eventually is corruption. And so the high priests the party of the Sadducees who controlled what happens at the temple court, it would be easy for them to say to merchant, uh, merchants, we, we will charge you this much for you to have a spot for you to sell animals. And for those merchants then to mark up those animals uh, an exorbitant amount to those who are worshiping. And so everyone got rich off of those who wanted to come and worship, and Jesus calls it, a robber's den. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, but it became a place of profit. And that's what made Jesus so upset. You know, um, the Roman Catholic Church, that was the church. Before the Protestant Reformation, we only had the Roman Catholic Church, or the church. Had, at that time, uh, what I would say is a monopoly on forgiveness. So if you, if, you're, if you come from a, a Catholic background or if you know a little bit about the Catholic religion, if, if you wanted to ask for forgiveness, you would go to your priest, Father, I have sinned. And the priest would say, well, this is what you must do. Um, you must either, you must, have, you must be contrite, you must, be, you must really feel bad, you must confess what you really did, and you must, uh, uh, you must satisfy God. You must do that which uh, communicates that you're really sorry. Either good works, a, a, uh, a trip to a place that, um, that really honors God, or what later became was indulgences, uh, monetary gifts equal to the proportion of the sin. And of course, what happened was that that became corrupted. And so uh, a person said, Father, forgive me, for I have uh, committed adultery. Father, forgive me, I have raped someone. And the father would say, oh, are you, do, you, are, do you really feel bad? Yes, I do. Well, this is what you must do. You must give. We, we have a new building project coming up. You must give $200,000 to this project, and you will be forgiven, and so that your time in purgatory will be shortened or, or, or 
or disappear. The Roman Catholic Church had a monopoly on forgiveness, and that became corrupt, and that became one of the impetuses for what we know as the Protestant Reformation. If you know um, a little bit about Martin Luther, uh, he wrote the 95 Thesis, and which is like 95 bullet points of things that he finds um, that the Catholic Church, that, that the church, and he was part of the church, by the way, that we're doing wrong, that we must correct. Thesis number 82. Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? The former reason would be most just. The latter is most trivial. Why are we, he's saying, why is the church demanding money so that we can build up cathedrals and not forgiving those who sincerely are repentant. When Jesus sees what's going on, he not only says, uh, uh, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but he adds, but you have made it a Robertson. He is quoting the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called, called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." Jesus was appalled at what he saw. But, listen carefully, I do not believe that that bothered him the most, the corruption of religion. The thing I believe bothered him more was the marginalization of, uh, of the outsiders. The marginalization of the outsiders. And let me explain. So when Jesus uh, yells at the crowd, as it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, all the nations, for all the nations. Remember, where was this taking place? The court of Israel? It was taking place at the court of the Gentiles. If you don't quite feel the impact of what Jesus is saying, this is taken from Isaiah chapter 56. Now, Isaiah was written during the time of the exile when the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nations, were under captivity by the Babylonians. So, um, although the, uh, the, the Israel at the time of the Roman occupation had reasons to be upset, the Jews, uh, back in Isaiah time, they were under captivity by the Babylonians. They had far more reasons to be upset at Gentiles, at outsiders. At, but... This is the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 7. Let me read. Um, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. I, I want that to sink in for a little bit. The prophet Isaiah is addressing the foreigner who desperately wants to worship and connect 
and be right with God, but who feels like I, I am, I'm separated. And let the eunuch, who would have been one of the most despised uh, categories of people in that civilization, who felt like they, they just are not complete, they're, they're not good enough, who would say, I, I'm fruitless. He's addressing these two groups of people directly. For thus, says the Lord, verse 4, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar because for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. Did you get that? Did you, do you understand the context in which Jesus pulls that quote from, that prophecy from? We normally read the confrontation of the temple and, and conclude that the reason why Jesus was so upset that he, is that he turned the sanctuary into a marketplace and it prevented people, it, it prevented worshipers from worshiping. Now, listen carefully. The Jewish males had a place to pray. It was in the court of Israel. The Jewish females had a place to pray. It was in the court of women. What they were doing excluded, basically marginalized, basically communicated to foreigners, you don't have a place here. You do not belong here. You do not have a right to pray and to meet our God. I believe this is what upset Jesus more. And what was revealing about this is this. I, I gave you the context. The Jewish people welcomed Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. Their greatest pain were the Roman uh, uh, oppressors, and their greatest desire is, Lord, come and destroy the Gentiles. They weren't praying, Lord, save the Romans. The irony is that the crowd was expecting Jesus to come like Moses and to, uh, and to attack and to destroy the Gentile oppressors, but Jesus comes and, and attacks the Jewish religious system instead. As one writer writes, the grandiose expectations of the multitudes would have inclined them to expect Jesus to muster his forces and launch an all-out attack on the military garrison in Jerusalem. Instead, Jesus marched into the temple and launched a surprise attack against the religious establishment. The Jews hoped for an attack against Rome, Jesus waged war against religion. And the response of the religious elites, the chief priests and the scribes in verse 18, they, uh, and they officially began seeking how to destroy Jesus because, not because they simply disagreed, it says in verse 18, for they were afraid of him. 
because they knew what he was saying was correct. And it also explains, by the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, on Palm Sunday, the crowd, the massive crowds were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who came, comes in the name of the Lord. We make songs and we sing it. A few days later, the whole crowd, the crowd changes their mind and say, crucify him, crucify him. And I believe the reason why the crowd turned so quickly within a matter of days is because they were welcoming Jesus, saying, come and destroy Rome. But rather, Jesus came and said, no, no, they're not the problem, you're the problem. And the crowd responded, saying, you need to die then. Let me ask you a question. Does the church, do we sometimes... Do we sometimes take those groups of people, categories of people in our hearts, do we ever say, Lord, come and destroy them? Lord, judge them. Lord, keep us away from them. When really the heart of God is saying, Lord, come, save them, be gracious to them, be merciful to them. That was the problem of Jonah, wasn't it? Years ago, I was speaking to a, a, a Japanese church leader. And we had an interesting conversation. And I asked him how the church in Japan was doing overall. And, I, and I, we compared notes because you know, like I was telling him about Korea and the disparity between Christianity in Japan and Christianity in Korea. And how both uh, countries come from uh, war and, and difficult economic times and such. And, um, and uh, there are a lot of reasons, Shintoism and, and cultural pride, et cetera, et cetera. But he said something really interesting that stuck with me. He said after World War II, Japan as a nation was devastated too, just like Korea was. Korea welcomed missionaries. And so there was a Christian revival. Japan invited missionaries. What this past Japanese pastor told me historically was that a lot of American missionaries were reluctant to go to Japan. Out of fear, perhaps, out of just a, a hatred of the Japanese, the enemies. But there was a missed opportunity there. There's a final little story that I'm going to weave in. It's the condemnation of the tree. There's an um, in verses 12 through 14, as they were going into the temple, Jesus sees a, a fig tree from afar. It looks free, fruitful. It has a lot of leaves. He goes there, and there's no fruit, and he curses it. In verse 14, may no one eat, of, eat fruit from you again. Next day, they come to the tree. It's all withered. And Peter notices and, and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And I'm not going to go into depth. The fig tree was an important figure like a, um, that, that the Old Testament uses and New Testament talks about. But um, the fig tree represents Israel. And how it looks fruitful from afar, but when you get close to it, it's barren. It's fake. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, during Passover week, uh, hundreds of thousands of people came to offer sacrifices, uh, believing that a sacrifice will bring salvation. Jesus was in that crowd, and, and they, they looked at Jesus, 
and they, they thought that perhaps this miracle worker will be like the miracle worker of Moses, that on this Passover week, that he will judge their enemies and save them. Jesus goes not to confront the Romans, though, but the Jews, uh, the, the Jewish religion itself. And he does all of this, I believe, for a purpose to not only make a point that there, there's something corrupt, but listen, the crowd was right to associate the coming of Jesus with Passover. Okay? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. But I want you to listen. But Jesus did not come to fulfill the Passover as a conquering king in the likeness of Moses. Jesus came to fulfill Passover as the Passover lamb to be sacrificed, to shed his blood for the forgiveness of both Jews and Gentiles alike. And he used the sacrificial system at the temple where he was condemned by the very priests who were supposed to be the mediators. He willingly walked into the temple and and basically said, I am to be the final and last Passover lamb. Deliver me up. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the meaning of the cross, the sacrifice that was given by your perfect lamb. And Lord, may we learn of it. May we embrace it. May we continue to pursue you, Jesus. We thank you in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.